Everybody, today's our last class. I'm sorry. All good things must come to an end. I hope you kind of feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if anyone is interested, in, in, again, I'm teaching a senior seminar this summer. It's a small seminar, and anyone who wants to take it is eligible, even if you're not a senior. So uh, there are a couple of slots if that is of interest. And that'll be on the topic of human rights. You got to pay Georgia State tuition. <laughs> yeah, regular class. It's forty nine hundred political science forty nine hundred. Okay, um, if you weren't here on Tuesday, the instructions on the paper and video are on the podcast that I uploaded. Um, but if anyone has any questions about that, I'll take those now. Um, I'm encouraging you to post outlines between now and and some of you have been very very good about that. And I want to commend those of you that have posted outlines. It sets the pace um, for what I'd like everyone to do. I mean, I really would like everyone. It's not required. But to post an outline and try a draft and, and see how it works. Because that's how you learn. You learn by doing. Yes? Um, Were you? I think you. Oh, good. The paper is five pages double-spaced. Please put it in my box. If you send it to me via email, do not send an attachment. Send it copied and pasted into an email message. And that would not be double spaced. But 1,500 words. Is your email in the service? Mm -hmm. um, say you had. But don't send me an attachment, because I won't open it. Say you, um, I guess. You're doing the, if you're doing the video, you upload to YouTube. Right, no, I'm doing the um, paper. But say you had a, I guess, initial standpoint you wanted to take on the issue, but after doing more reading, you found that it was more evidence to support the contrary. Can you? So you decided that there is global warming? No, not global warming. I'm doing on globalization, but okay. I mean, they they kind of lean toward the fact that global. Well, they're both interrelated, and, and in fact, if you're doing a paper on either, you really should refer to some of the concepts in the other chapter. Right. You are encouraged to, you know, you know, take from the entire class and not just the one chapter that, or reading that you're drawing from. But say, I mean, because I know they mentioned it a lot in the chapter on capitalism too. They talk about it. I mean, some microfinances. Right. So say you find that it's more evidence to support. You, you know what Lord Keynes, uh, the famous economist, said? That? That someone asked him, you changed your view. And, and he responded by saying, when the facts are different, I usually change my mind. What do you do? Right. You know, I mean, that's honesty, right? right. Yeah, I, I'm not here to punish anybody for anyone's viewpoints. I am evaluating how well you make your argument, but not what you argue. I know there's a fine line between the two. But what I'm essentially saying is, if you're doing a paper systematically, you're going to present the three or four because statements to your why question. And then in your conclusion, you're going to tell me the strengths and weaknesses of your own arguments. It's not, as I said on Tuesday, a paper of advocacy. It's a paper of analysis. And you're just trying to put pros and cons as, as you see them, but honestly see them, and you're self-critical. So yeah. The other thing I want to emphasize is in that introductory paragraph, you must, and I encourage you to do it in the outline first so you know you'll do it, define the key word or words. So in a question about why does globalization harming the environment, say, you're going to have to define globalization and you're going to have to define harm, maybe the environment. 
And the other thing you do in your introduction is say what you're going to do in the rest of the paper, basically giving the order of your because answers to your why question. And then your conclusion, you sum it up and say, reason number one is my strongest argument, here's why. Reason number two has some weaknesses, here's what's the counter argument. Reason number three was my weakest argument, but it's still important. Um, but I, I've, I've rejected these other kinds of arguments that would prove me wrong. That's the kind of evaluation I'd, I'd like you to try to do. Think of this as an exercise. You know, you're training for the big event. And the big event would be a much longer paper someday or, or some assignment. So you say it's okay to shift your viewpoint? Yeah. I, I want you to, if you've changed your mind, that's a sign that you've thought about it. That's okay. a good thing, not a bad thing. All right. we, we're not going to progress in this world if we all make up our minds and then don't listen to each other. If we just debate. Then we argue past each other, and it's so annoying. It's like you make an argument, the other person ignores everything you said, and comes back with another argument, and you prepare. You, you in turn respond by repeating what you said the first time, and you just go back and forth, and you're getting nowhere. If you're in it for learning, you're listening to what the other person says, you calmly say, this is where I agree, this is where I disagree, and you address what the person said. There's nothing more annoying than having a, an argument where you're not even listening to each other. Uh, you know, there's, in the current issue of the American Political Science Review, which is the top journal in my field, there's a statistical study on how often and why people argue with people they disagree with. I don't know why it is, but men are twice as likely as women to get into political discussions with people they disagree with. Maybe because women don't talk about politics as much, or because women are often home alone, and they don't talk to anyone but their girlfriends. Or, you know, I'm not saying in your generation. I mean, in your generation, that's not true. But in my generation, yeah. See, I'm older than you. You, you, you can cut me some slack. I'm, I'm treading on thin ice. I said, I didn't write the article. The article said this. I didn't say it. Go read the American Political Science Review. Don't take it out of me. Um, anyway, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, if these men are having arguments with people at the water cooler at work or in the tavern or what have you, it's not doing the world any good if all you're doing is debating. Because really, I mean, debate is a fine art. And when you go into court as a lawyer, you only argue your client's viewpoint. So it, it has some relevance. But as a people, we've got to come up with consensus. And as far as global warming is concerned for today, we had catastrophe at Copenhagen in December 2009. And at Cancun, which is where the conference in 2010 was held, the chapter said Mexico City, but it was moved to Cancun, they didn't get anywhere. So we had four major blocks of countries in, in Copenhagen. The developed countries, the developing countries, and the poor countries, and then there was none of the above. And it's hard enough getting a consensus within, just within any one of those groups. So depending on how you look at it, the glass is either half full or half empty. The people in the chapter who were quoted as saying the glass is half empty said, we have no agreement. And we've missed the deadline for Kyoto Protocol. Kyoto is the international law framework that we deal with. It came after the Rio summit of 1992, which also came out of the Stockholm summit of 1972, 
to try to deal with the world's problems. The world's problems are based on the global commons. And we have no consensus. Now, oddly enough, Europe, which is 27 EU countries and 48 countries total, you all know the European Union by now, I hope, but the 27 European Union countries have a consensus, even though they have 27 countries and therefore a much more difficult challenge in what political scientists call collective action problems. 27 sovereign states have committed to cap and trade and carbon taxes and are getting their carbon production down to the point where at least Europe's contribution, or the EU's contribution, to global warming will meet the 2% degrees Celsius uh, rise in global temperature uh, by 2020 compared with the Industrial Revolution four centuries ago. We're an N of one. We're one country, and we can't even get consensus within the United States. That's how, what the difference in political culture between Europe and us. Can you guys put those machines away, please? Thanks. Um, that's a puzzle for political scientists, but this is, this is more than just intellectual games. This is a serious problem. How can one country, or granted, we're a big country, but one country can't even reach any agreement when 27 European countries have all agreed to sacrifice. The answer is because in the United States, or what is the answer, what does the chapter say? Why, why do we in the United States have such a hard time coming to any agreement at all on stopping the pollution of the, the world's atmosphere? After all, we invented air pollution controls. We were the first with catalytic converters for cars. They got, when I was a kid, Los Angeles was a joke. You looked out the window, um, LAPD TV shows, and you see nothing but smog. It was bad news. Now the air in LA is better than ours. We have the worst smog in the country. Why is that? We mean in Georgia? Yeah. Well, yeah. Greater Atlanta. We have the highest rate of asthma in the country. Why, why is it that Georgia is worse than California? Why is it the United States generally is totally divided? What used to be true in LA was they had car culture. But they spread their development out so that people's average commute was six miles. In, in Georgia, in Atlanta rather, the average commute is 37 miles each way, longest by 12 miles of any city in the country. Because we have three or four places where people work and people drive an hour each way in terrible traffic. Why? I don't know. Drive me nuts if I had to do that. But people do it here. California has state regulations on global warming. We have zero in Georgia. Why is that? Because we're a low tax state. They're a high tax state. They have fiscal problems. We have fiscal problems. But our culture is different than California's, and the United States culture is different than Europe. What's the difference? We're very individualistic. We're very materialistic. We have, we're a car culture. But it's not just cars. Who is the biggest consumer of carbon-based fuels in the United States? Anyone know? Yeah. Uh, you could look at by sector, you could also look at by institution. By institution. Which institution is the biggest consumer by far of gasoline, electricity? Transportation. 
That's a sector. The military. The military is by far, and they, they're, they need gasoline to fight three wars at the same time. What's the biggest sector? It's in that chart on the second or third page. Hospitals? Hospitals and institutions. What's a, a sector is like electricity, transport, oh, okay. agriculture. If you look on page, if you look at, trying to find a page here, sorry. Four seventeen sounds right. Yeah, four seventeen, the lower right hand column. You see, the largest chunk there is electric power. Just think of it, my electric bill has doubled in five years. Why is it doubled? Well, prices have gone up. But the biggest thing is I got these things. I got cable TV, Wii, Xbox, iPod, X phone, Y phone, Z phone, you name it. And, and not only that, the little, little lights are on 24-7. Why? Because if I if I turn them off, my kids will scream because they ought to wait 15 seconds to power up the cable box. No, no, they got me trolled. I need you to come and clean things up. Can you? What's your price? I don't charge too much, but a thousand dollars is not too much. I give you a professor discount. Five thousand would be a steal. Oh yeah, I can do. I do it for I believe in fairy godmothers. You know. That's right. You're going to float in, and <laughs> come down the chimney. <laughs> that could be perfect. <laughs> Those kids were a piece of cake in Mary Poppins compared to mine. <laughs> I got a football player you got to deal with. You can handle a football player? I understand. When the coach says something, he does it. When I say something, it's a big joke. Why, why, why do coaches get this special treatment? I don't get it. All they got is playing time. All they have is playing time. What's that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, um, what's that? Okay. I'm blessed, right? Um, all right, so Europe is different than the United States. You know, Venus is to Mars as women are to men. Europe is to the United States. <clears throat> but beyond that problem is the problem of collective action, right? You've got developing countries who think that <clears throat> the Americans came to Copenhagen and they're trying to get away with murder because they're only talking about reducing the rate of increase. When the whole world is trying to reduce levels of production so that we don't all die. One of the problems is that the way the United States sees it, we need a 1% to 2% increase in greenhouse gases every year to grow our economy. And since growing our economy is the number one factor that politicians know determine whether they win or lose elections, they're not about to do something that's going to cost them. And if the economy doesn't grow, they lose. If the economy grows, they win. The economy's growing right now, Obama's going to win. Actually, the, the actual computer model is the economy at Labor Day for a November election. 
because after November, after September, it's too late. The two-month lag effect. You can explain three out of the four presidential elections on that economic statistic alone, nothing else. You want to make a bet on the next election, just look at the economy. If it's growing more than 2% on Labor Day, it's, almost three, it's a three out of four chance just on that factor alone. And if he's, not in, if he's not losing any wars, then he's guaranteed. If he's losing wars, then that's the second most important factor. And right now, we're losing three. <coughs> <coughs> Losing means not winning. Because the cost of being there is so enormous that not winning means that we're not getting our bills paid up. So the developing countries say, look, the Americans still want to consume 1% to 2% more per year. And they got rich and dirty. Could you put that away? Thank you. They got, the Americans got rich and dirty for 100 years without emissions controls. Why should we have to put emissions controls and increase our cost of production? We have a harder time of making our economy grow because we're a late developer and we're trying to sell our products in, against all this world's competition. And the only thing we can compete on is price. And if you force us to spend a lot of money on emissions controls to produce all these goods, our prices are not gonna be lower and we need to be lower. So you're screwing us. It's a, it's a plot by the rich countries against us. Then you've got the middle countries, the countries that are growing rapidly, like India, Brazil, China, and to some extent South Africa, which are growing, but they're still not rich yet. China is the largest polluter of greenhouse gases in the world. But it's only the second largest economy, and they've got 11 times as many people. China says, Hey, why can't we have cars? So on the demand side, these countries are getting wealthy, and they want some of the benefits of getting wealthy. They don't want to sacrifice forever. But if they have more cars, they're going to have more pollution. If they're going to keep growing their economy, they're going to need more electricity for both consumption and production. So the supply and the demand, to use the, the microeconomics chart, is that we are consuming more products that use greenhouse gases. And we're producing more products that produce greenhouse gas gases. And no one is paying the price of cleaning it up. This is what economists call externalities. An externality is any economic transaction that doesn't cover all the costs of production. And that includes the cost to, soci to society, or in this case, the global commons. Now, why do we use the term? Global commons. Does anyone know what a commons is? Sometimes they talk about freshman commons, which is where everyone goes to the dining hall. But that's not what. Anyone know anything about New England in the 18th century or um, Georgia in the 18th century? It's an area that's shared by the entire. Community. That's right, and usually it's for grazing. So now, of course, it might be a park, but it, you know, back when everybody had a cow and, and so forth, the commons was commonly held land. And everybody would graze, right? What was the risk of that? Overgrazing. Overgrazing. How does that happen? Um, too many animals eating all the grass. And not only eating the grass, but eating the grass down to where the roots are, right? And what happens when you do that? It's not going to grow back at all. If you eat the seeds, there's going to be no new grass. So the tragedy of the commons very famous article by someone named Garrett Hardin 
is all about the fact that if you want to provide a freebie, do a nice thing, you actually can hurt yourself in the long run if the commons gets overgrazed. Ever hear of Cape Cod? Who's been to Cape Cod? Nice place, right? When I was a kid, the cheapest fish in the market was from Cape Cod. It was called cod. Now they have a fancy name for it because it's such a luxury. But when I was a kid, you could get cod for 99 cents a pound. Now you'd be like 16 bucks a pound. Now granted, there's been inflation, but 99 cents a pound for cod. Haddock was $1.29 a pound. I don't know when I was a kid, when I was a young adult. Because I don't, I don't know the prices. My mom paid for them, my father paid for them. But when I was first buying food in the late 70s, doing my own cooking, boy, that was a joke. Um, you know, haddock and cod, it was everywhere. Now there's no more cape, there's no more cod in the cape because it's called overfishing. Supposedly you have fishing seasons and hunting seasons. Why? So you don't overfish and you don't overhunt. Because if you overhunt, you kill too many or consume too many, and they won't live long enough to reproduce. When I was a kid, a two-pound lobster was $4.99. And that was a two or really a two-and-a-half-pound lobster. Now you're lucky to get a one-pound lobster, and it's 40 bucks. They haven't quite killed off all the lobsters, but they're, do they're getting there real fast. And you basically got to go to a Chinese restaurant to get lobster these days. I don't know why they get, get all the lobsters. I never see them anywhere else because they're so expensive. You go to Buford Highway and you can get a great lobster dinner at one of those Chinese restaurants. How many people have been to Buford Highway? It's a long road. <laughs> Which part? When you say Buford Highway, you're talking about Chambly Tucker where the Latin American restaurants in the East Asian. Why do they have every kind of ethnicity? Well, they have Latin American, East Asia. I don't know what else they have. It's like what goes to Buford? Right. I mean, exactly. Buford is oh, there you go. some county I've never even heard of. Buford, I think, is that town that's rated one of the best places to live in the country. Anyway, so what happened at Copenhagen was. Most of the world's pre presidents were planning to go there and announce we finally, since the 1992 Rio summit, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, implemented the Kyoto Protocol. Because the Kyoto Protocol was not ratified even by Japan, which is where the thing was negotiated. And it wasn't ratified by the United States or Russia or China. And Copenhagen, December 2009, it was all going to come together. And it was a catastrophe. These presidents, which are only supposed to come after all the work's been done, assume that all the work would be done. They come there and get all the glory. And what happened is all they had was fights all week. And the presidents got on the floor. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, were shouting, screaming at each other, pushing almost. It was really a sight to behold. You could have had World War III if things had gotten out of hand. But they didn't. Obama comes at the last minute pulls together four other countries, China, Brazil, South Africa, and India. The two biggest polluters in the world, the US and China, and the four biggest emerging economies in the world, China plus Brazil, South Africa, and India. And they got an agreement. That agreement did not achieve most of what the Copenhagen Agreement was supposed to do, which was to get 
Most importantly, world production of greenhouse gases by the year 2020 down between to 25 to 50 percent of 1990. Decrease. And in 2050, it was supposed to get to 50 percent. So the goal of this whole process was to get to the point we were producing half as many greenhouse gases as we used to produce in 1990, 60 years later. Instead, we got an agreement that five countries negotiated and only 30 out of 193 signed, which said, we're going to try and get to, but it's all voluntary, non-binding, two degrees warmer than the Industrial Revolution, which is about one degree warmer than it was in 1990. So it, it's an agreement, theoretically, of these five countries to get to a level that will be continued warm. Europe, did, yeah. Did they uh, negotiate taxes for achieving these 1990s, Well, that's what they were trying to do in Copenhagen, and, and they had four major blocks. You had developed countries, developing countries, underdeveloped countries, and then you had guys like Hugo Chavez of, of Venezuela who just didn't want to be, make trouble. I guess if you're cynical. If you love Hugo Chavez and you say he was standing up for truth, justice, in the Venezuelan way, and socialismo, Revolution, and, you know, a little cigar and a long beard and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, with four major blocks, you couldn't get anywhere. And so we have no international law at all. We had had at least benchmarks. Europe didn't sign either because it didn't go far enough. Europe has already agreed to reduce to the levels that were supposed to be achieved at Copenhagen, which is a 25 to 40% reduction from 1990s levels. Whereas the Americans are going to be about 1% above 1990. And the Americans' agreement with the four other countries, which did bridge the gap between developing and developed, except that it only has the worst of the developers in terms of pollution, the Americans, not the best of the developers in the sense of reducing pollution, which is the Europeans. Curiously, the Japanese are kind of on our side. Because, they, you know, when, in terms of ideology, the Japanese are, is a low-tax, pro-business country, too. But they're not individualistic. They're collectivist communitarians. Europe is communitarians and socialists. And America is the opposite of socialism and the opposite of communitarian. And Europe is anti-nationalism because they had two world wars and they said we've had enough of that. Whereas the United States remains very nationalistic. And if you want to, you know, take it further, the United States has a military expenditure every year which includes consuming all of these carbon-based fuels where the, our military spends more than the rest of the world put together and by some estimates 50% more than the rest of the world put together. Yeah. So if the European Union, or the 27 countries, if they have such a good model for reducing uh, <coughs> these, uh, these, these gases and whatnot, what would be so hard for the United States in mimicking some of their good... Uh, well, this is the strange thing. is they got 27 sovereign countries 
who basically said, the EU Commission said, this is what you're going to do, and they all said, great. What's so hard? Well, the chapter's all full of reasons. Reason number one, our industries create scientific research that's not in peer-reviewed journals. What's a peer-reviewed journal? Anyone know? Sorry? That's the key. The key is double-blind peer review. You don't know who the three to four evaluators are, and they don't know who you are. Now, you might be able to figure it out. Now, is it a perfect system? No. We professors hate it. Why? Because we keep getting dinged. You ever been dinged for a job? Try working for an, on a paper for a year, and you get these comments, and you feel about this big because it's so, it comes across as so brutal. Yet when I review, double blind, <laughs> you know, I'm usually in a bad mood. I want to get my anger taken out. So the first word is incoherent, you know, or something. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you hate, it, you basically, it takes you three years to publish in a journal. But the journals are where all the prestige and, but there's a huge time lag. Almost nobody, gets a major grant or a major journal article without submitting it three times. And you can only submit to one journal at a time. But what peer review does is basically, it's a just check and balance on quality. And you know, while the number of journals are always growing, generally you, know, you, can't, you can't have too many journals because after a while, if you publish an unprestigious journal, people just look at your resume and say, all you do is publish in journals that are easy to publish in. But typically, in, in a top journal like the American Political Science Review, only 3% of submissions get published. And that and it has the highest level of competition. It's kind of like the difference between D3 and NFL. You know, it's a very hierarchical system. You know, there's nothing in between. So what are these? What does Mobile do? What does the Edison Electric Power Institute, which is the trade association of electric power plants, do? They create their own journal. There's no peer review. And they create this, all this research that says, the United States isn't global warming. The Earth is not getting warmer. Or if it is, technology will come to the rescue. So Americans, you know, and, and you ever notice how who gets on TV on a debate, like on Meet the Press on Sunday or Jim Lair News Hour. It's always going to be on the one hand this, on the other hand that. But on the other hand, it could be somebody who's talking nonsense. But if it's another point of view and there are enough rich people there paying him, then that's a, that's quote unquote a legitimate point of view in America. What's the problem in uh, igniting the love for the, uh, the movie uh, about the McCarthy period? Uh, good night. Good. Good night and good luck. It was, it was uh, Edward R. Morrow's sign-off. Oh, okay. Oh, right, 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 right. And of course, he's in that predicament where the network is saying you have to be fair and you have to present both sides and the network can't take sides. But he sees clearly what's going on. He sees that there's a right and wrong. And so he's in this predicament where he sort of has to stick his neck out. This is in like, I guess, 54, 53. Dealing with McCarthy. Dealing with McCarthy. So McCarthy gets equal time. Exactly when you realize McCarthy's just making up all this stuff without any evidence. Right. 
Although it turned out some of the things he said actually proved to be true, but right. not because he said them. Right. Um, and he, he ruined the lives of tens of thousands of people who were completely innocent, and that's the point. You have to, if you're going to make a charge, let's hear the evidence. He was right that there were communists in the State Department, but the people accused of being communists weren't communists. And the ones who were communists weren't on the Soviet payroll. They just believed in it. Right. So cap and trade, is that is a part of Copenhagen or that is common? Cap and trade and carbon taxes are the two policy instruments that have been developed. Cap and trade is a supply side solution. Carbon tax is demand side solution. Supply side means changing the costs that producers pay Demand side means changing the cost that consumers pay. So a carbon tax charges you at the gas pump or in your electric bill a tax to get you to decrease your consumption and therefore decrease your personal contribution to greenhouse gases. So wasn't there a uh, poll that showed that 57% of Americans agreed to a carbon tax of uh, 25 cents added per gallon of gas to reduce greenhouse gases? There are lots of polls that prove everything, I guarantee. 75% Americans oppose torture, but did any American complain when these guys got tortured? Well, part of the problem is intensity. You can have a preference, but the real question is, do you feel strongly enough about it to raise a stink? Okay? Americans are 99% opposed to war, opposed to unemployment, opposed to higher taxes, in favor of better schools, cleaner streets, a stronger defense, and better health care. But when you stick them all together, you get contradictions. You can't have lower taxes and better schools. So as far as, you know, depending on the exact wording of the poll, you may be asked, the person may be thinking, oh, they're asking me, am I in favor of reducing global warming? That, who, who's not in favor of global warming? I guess if you're in the, the Arctic and you're cold, you might be in favor of global warming. You know, most people say this is so scientific, all this research, I don't understand it. I understand enough to know that there's two sides of this issue because I saw them debating on TV. And I know that it's going to cost me more taxes and the economy's going to be harmed if we control greenhouse gases because they told me so. And you know, for many people, pollution is a nice thing to get rid of, but if, it, if I have to lose my job, or if I have to pay more in taxes, I'm against it. I just said carbon tax, right? If you charge a dollar per gallon, now of course it depends on whether gas is $2 a gallon or $4 a gallon. But based on what I observe in Atlanta, I've taken Marta to work for 13 years. Seems to me a perfectly good system. I even take the bus when I can to get to Marta. Practically everyone working in downtown ought to take Marta as a public service. Even if they drove to the Marta station, it's free parking. How many people do it? Even where they work close to Marta, they don't do it. And, you know, if I take Mart outside rush hour, I'm the only white person on the train. It just that's the way. And rush hour, white people take it. But you know, since I work bankers' hours, come in late, leave late. 
Occasionally there's a white Georgia State student on there, but not too often. Uh, East-West line, what? Well, it, it, white people have more money to, to drive. I don't, there's this terrible ac abbreviation, I won't repeat it, but you've probably heard it, right? From Marta. So there, there's an element of racism out there. But it depends on what neighborhood you're thinking of. Yeah. Well, you say it. Don't ask me to say it. <laughs> <laughs> there are people in Atlanta that are opposed to MARTA because they don't like what never happened, what they imagine happening. Their communities being taken over, right? Or whatever it is they worry about. They had some in the paper about a train was taken over by some yeah, teenagers. 20, 20 kids. Yeah. 20 people, not Thirteen, eighteen years old. They hijacked the train. And they beat yeah. up somebody. They yeah. beat the person up. Yeah. Well, they used to have cops on each train, but because of all the cutbacks, there are no cops there. <laughs> so we would have to rely on vigilante justice. Thirteen year olds, like thirteen to like eighteen. I got to tell you, it's an education. I've seen, again, maybe I'm, this is not politically correct to say, but I've seen some young ladies use language on the MARTA train. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's one thing, you know, you get in a fight at home and you curse out your parent, which it should never happen. But when you see, like, you know, every third world speaking out, I just... Yeah, it's against the rules to move to go from one car to the next. It's not stopping them. Yeah, most people don't give any, so they don't give, make, they give up. In other cities, it's a crime. By the way, middle class blacks don't take it either. I think it's money. I, the main reason is money. If you have money, you can get to work faster in a car, right? You don't care that it causes congestion. You don't care that it causes global warming. Well, what's your, do you do it to reduce global warming? Or is it because you don't have Well, because I'm a professor, I do a lot of reading, so it's not sunk time for me. So I, it's easier for me. I mean, I, I got it easy. Since I, I, I want to and I have to read, it's not lost time. I mean, I, I, I estimate it's a half an hour a day of walking from my house to the bus stop a short walk from the, at the train station to the platform, and then it's actually eight minutes from Georgia State to my office on average. So that's 16 minutes on that leg, you know, times two. So it's about half an hour. But walking would solve 60% of our country's health problems. If people would just do more walking, not, not exercise walk, just, but the problem is because the car was invented after World War II and they built highways so that you have the grocery score here and ten, five to 10 miles away, your home, instead of compact cities with buses and mass transit like Chicago, Boston, New York, the old cities, the cities that developed in the Industrial Revolution, everything is compact. So it's fun to walk. You see people on the street. There are sidewalks that are built. You can take the bus. You can t the trains are fast and quick. In Atlanta, it's more of a hassle. But, you know, MARTA is perfectly good. I'm sorry. I think it's good, and there's walking communities in Metro, you know, 
Yeah, there, and more and more. But <laughs> most people, if you live in Roswell, Alpharetta, Cobb. Yeah. I live in Ellenwood, and I'm not on the bus line. No, I, I, I took the Marta years ago, and I didn't have a car. You know. I'm just saying, right, Americans right. love their car. And I'm not saying, it's not a racial thing. It's just, on average, white people have more money than black people. So on average, it's more likely you're going to have white people in the car than black. But middle class and upper class blacks drive. But you know what? On the middle class black car, when I was in Buckhead, had I lived in the state when I was living in Buckhead, I most definitely would have taken the market. Buckhead, that's why I moved to Buckhead. Buckhead traffic is like the worst. Well, people pay a heavy price to live to live away from MARTA. You know, the, 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 I mean, people who really hate MARTA and want to be as far away as possible, they, they pay a price of being in that car. Now, for some people, they love being in that car because they're getting away from their spouse. <laughs> they want an hour off from life each day because they want to put it out of their mind. They want to put on the music. Some of them watch the video while they're driving. The rest of them are on their iPhone. You know, it, you better watch it when you're driving because if you see the person like this driving, you got to be on double alert. I'm or if they're doing this while they're driving. I know it's illegal, but. Evanston was a dry city. Yeah. Is it still? No. Just like what two liquor stores are, you know, that's not a lot. Georgia um, just allows Sunday sales now. Or maybe it's a referendum. But anyway, I wanted to just say you can go in Chicago and go like near White Sox Park, near Kaminsky Park. And you can get gang bang, gang, gang bang by uh, white. You can go to a Latin area and get gang bang by that. So you come to Atlanta and you get gang bang by. Ooh. I was surprised to hear that kind of word. <laughs> 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 They used to have an expression out of babes, out of the mouth of babes, <laughs> little babes. A certain times of the day. I mean, it's like he said, during the day, if you can go around White Sox Park, but certain times. Comiskey Park was torn down. Well, now it's called the, uh, still, I forgot, some company. You're dating yourself. What do you say you thought it was segregated? It is one of the most segregated cities because you okay. have a Chinatown, you have a, you have a. Um, they built the public housing all in the black section. Under Mayor Daly. Well, they have that on North and South Sides of Chicago, but, but they just have different. That's why, because you have it used to be a real segregated. Anyway, um, and the University of Chicago is in the black section, but it's like a rich white area in the middle of it. Yeah. Mixed area now. It's a mixed area. That's where Obama lived. Yeah, Hyde Park. That's where he still has his. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, 
The tragedy of the commons was the fact that you'd have overconsumption without government regulation. So the notion of market failure is the to correct a situation where externalities are produced that are not paid for by the consumer. So in this case, pollution or overgrazing, uh, you either have to have a higher price to, dec to decrease the consumption and let the market determine who gets to consume based on ability to pay and willingness to pay, or you have government regulation that just says you can only hunt six months a year instead of 12 months a year, or whatever the number is, on the theory that you'll do half as much hunting or half as much fishing. Now, in the case of the global commons, what we have is not overgrazing, over that is taking away the resource, although that's a problem too, because we are running out of carbon-based fuels. And that may be a solution to global warming, as we just run out and they can't find any more. But the main problem is the externality. External to what you pay at the pump is that fact that you do not pay currently a dime or nickel or a dollar for the amount of greenhouse gases that you're causing, which is raising the Earth's temperature, is causing flooding along the coastline, is forcing little pe uh, you know, peasant people uh, to move in Africa because they're getting droughts all the time. It caused in Atlanta droughts nine out of the last 11 years. Oddly enough, the last two years we've had much more rain than average. But how many years have we had drought the last nine years? We've had many more tsunamis. We've had many more hurricanes. The amount of tropical storms has tripled in the last 10 years through the Gulf of Mexico region. The uh, Gulf Stream is changing direction. So England's going to freeze. It's no longer going to be that fair and pleasant land with terrible humidity but long nights and gray winters. It's going to be frigid cold. Uh, and you're going to have certain parts of the Earth getting warmer that used to be cold, and certain parts of uh, the, the Earth that used to be warm and now are going to be hot, and there are certain parts of the Earth that, that are hot that are going to be boiling. The biggest burden is going to be on the seacoast, because the water is going to rise because the polar ice cap is melting. So even as we get um, colder, in the northeast of the United States because the cold water comes down from the melted ice polar cap and cools the temperature because the colder water comes south. The average for the world goes up, which means there's more rainfall falling down from the sky because it evaporates faster and comes down faster and floods the coast and puts everybody on the coastline underwater. Plus, all these islands are disappearing and indigenous peoples who often live on islands and seacoasts, particularly up in Alaska and places like that, they have no place to live. Yeah. Um, I heard a theory, I don't know if you're familiar with it, that the, I guess oil companies would like to be able to drill but in those Arctic areas, but they can't because the ice shifts and that they're in favor of global warming because it's going to melt the ice and allow them to. Yeah, they're going to be winners and losers. That's a very good example. I mean, there are people who are looking forward to global warming. And even a skeptic like Freeman Dyson, all of the skeptics among the science community are non-climatologists. They don't specialize in complex computer models trying to predict the future temperature of the Earth as a result of past data that's been collected about global warming. The most famous of these is Freeman Dyson, who's a very famous physicist. 
And what he says, and what they all, who are at least semi-serious, say is, yes, the Earth is getting warmer. Yes, we are producing more carbon dioxide. But no, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Why? Because carbon dioxide has some practical uses, right? Who, who consumes carbon dioxide? Fish. So if we produce more carbon dioxide, it's good for the fish. Second, we can make the trees, which also consume, uh, fish consume oxygen, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I got that wrong. So it's good for the trees, not the fish. So trees will get more carbon dioxide and we'll have more trees, so that'll be a self-correcting mechanism. Second, we'll take all the sulfur in the world the sulfur will, will make it dissolve, will shoot it up in the atmosphere, the sun's rays will hit the sulfur in the atmosphere and reflect the sun away, and with getting less sun in the atmosphere, we'll have a lower temperature. Third, it's good for green energy companies. One reason we've had, it's more expensive to um, move away from gasoline cars to electric cars and to move from coal-fired power plants to nuclear power plants, if it's even possible, because nuclear plants, when they're operating, don't produce greenhouse gases. When you mine for the uranium, they produce greenhouse gases. When you uh, dispose of the nuclear waste, you need greenhouse gases and so forth. But generally, nuclear plants, wind, solar, renewables, don't cause greenhouse gases. We have, right now, it's a big transition cost to move from one technology. You got to. A coal-fired electric power plant has got to be torn down completely or in place of coal you put in petroleum or in place of petroleum you put in a wind turbine or whatever it is. That costs money. But once you go in the business, those business will hire people. And you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur and feel good about yourself, get rich and also do good for the world, go into green energy. Become an entrepreneur, get a good idea, get some rich guy to fund you, and make a million dollars. You make the rich guy rich, you make yourself rich, and the earth is cleaner. Can't do worse than that. So, you're looking for a new job instead of teaching? I've actually thought about that. Yeah, well that's a good thing to think about. There's a huge market for green energy, and there are all kinds of incentive, tax incentives. If you have a wind plant, okay, everything you buy is like a 25% off your tax bill. There's only one problem with wind plants. People don't want one near their house. You go to Europe, you see these windmills everywhere. Everybody says, isn't that pretty? You go to the United States, you say, boy, that's ugly. Is that right? In the Midwest, they got a lot of wind. The second problem is it blows harder at night. But night is not when you need the electricity. The peak power to run the air conditioners, which of course Europe, they don't have air conditioners because they're not, and, and they wear sweaters and coats indoors. Imagine that. We go around in t-shirts in winter because, because they don't heat the buildings up so much to save energy. Because gasoline is taxed in Europe at three times the price that we pay. Because they're willing to pay the taxes because they, they live in a very compact continent, 500 million people in an area of land somewhat larger than the United States. Wow. And you don't need as, you can pay, if you only drive a quarter as far to get to work, and you got a train if you take a long trip and the train goes 300 miles an hour instead of 50 miles an hour, 
and it's smooth, and it's right, it goes right through the middle of your town. You don't have to go out to any airport, and you don't have to, you know, and the train is subsidized, so the price is reasonable. They make it worth your while. In the United States, they offered Georgia money for a railroad, we turned it down. From Fayetteville to downtown? Of course, Sarah Palin turned down money for the bridge to nowhere. <laughs> How could it be a bridge to nowhere? Nowhere on the other side of the bridge. Where they show not be Well, anyway. Um, so, uh, the global commons is getting warmer. If you believe the estimates of the scientists who specialize in climatology, we are headed for four degrees Celsius, which is eight degrees Fahrenheit hotter by the year 2100. So if the average temperature in Atlanta every year is 60, it'll be 70, which means when it used to be 95 in Atlanta, it's gonna be 105. I mean, is it just me, but I moved here 10 years ago, and I can really Well, you look at the plants, right? Now we're using Los desert plants. Well, the, the global warming is also causing more global turbulence because you get cold mass and hot mass coming together. And when there's a storm and it rains, the temperature usually drops. You notice we're getting more thunderstorms, which is actually a good thing because then it cools us off. But that's tropical pattern, not whatever pattern we had before all of this hit. Now, there's also some problems here. What's the difference between risk and uncertainty? Anyone know? No one knows the difference between risk and uncertainty? Well, risk would be uh, the potential for an adverse effect, right? No? And uncertainty would be not knowing. Yes, that's correct. Risk is our known odds about the future, like rolling the dice. You know that the odds of getting snake eyes is one out of 36, and will always be that. If you roll the dice a million times, one out of 36 of the things will come out snake eyes, two ones. Uncertainty is where you don't know the odds. You might have confidence interval. You might be statistically 95% certain that uh, the globe will warm x degrees, um, plus or minus margin of error of, of 0.5 degrees. Okay, that's a statistical statement. That's a statement about uncertainty. The other thing about uncertainty is you can pay for better information. Now, the way the UN was set up after the Kyoto Protocol was to have uh, the ICCPR and the um, Kyoto Protocol's regime establishing it to fund this research. 
So the global bureaucracy that's been created by the Kyoto, Kyoto process is to create a research bureaucracy and a grant-making technology research organization. So one is research about computer models, about how fast the Earth is getting warmer, and the other is to give money to invest in green technologies or ways to reflect the sun out into the stratosphere so that the sun won't continue to heat the Earth um, while we're busy heating it up in the meantime. The notion here is that uh, we are dealing in the realm of uncertainty, not risk. There is, even among the climatologists, uh, a need for more and better information, more and better data in order to have a, a clearer idea of what we need to learn to have less uncertainty about the future. A lot of these computer models assume no technological change. Some of them assume some technological change. But clearly, a computer model cannot make the mistake of Malthus. What, what is, who was Malthus? Good luck, Yolanda. God bless you, Bob. Thank you. Anyone know who Thomas Malthus was? M-A-L-T-H-U-S? He was in the 18th century. Did you raise your hand? No. Anybody? Okay. 18th century thinker who predicted that um, given the growth of population and the limited resources for growing and producing food, that eventually mass starvation would occur in the Western world. Right. So population growth is here, food production is here, or food consumption, let's say. Right. And where the two lines cross is the time when the amount of food consumed is equal to the amount of people who would consume it. As population line goes above the food production line, the difference between the two lines is the number of people starving. And what's wrong with that argument? He didn't take into account natural disasters or uh, the rate which people dying younger, or there's something similar that he didn't take into account. Not bad guess, but not quite. Well, in fact, the population is geometric and it compounds it, whereas food production probably is linear, just a straight line. But what did he leave out? He, did leave, he didn't take, it's true, what you said is true, but that's not the usual critique. I mentioned it earlier. What could prove all these climate changes is wrong? Innovations in technology. Correct. Technological innovation, right? Now, all the models assume some technological innovation. And we're not just going to stand here and take it, you know. We've got to do something about it, right? So it doesn't assume that we're completely incompetent. The EU is reducing its global warming, even though it's getting no cooperation and reciprocation from us. Could you put that away, please? Thank you. Um, we are trying to figure out ways to do it in a coordinated fashion. We failed to do a one package deal at Copenhagen. But we're going to have new rules on air conditioners, new rules on gasoline consumption. You know, little by little, here and there, there's going to be improvements. Governments are going to finance technological innovation to make, figure out ways to consume all that extra carbon dioxide that we're producing. Governments are going to find ways to put the sulfur into the atmosphere and reflect the sun's rays 
away from us. There's going to be improvement. But right now, the Earth is getting warmer and warmer almost every year. Last year, we set the all-time world record for the most tsunamis. Last year, we set the all-time record for the most hurricanes. Last year, we spent the all-time record for the biggest change in temperature, positive and negative. And this was just in one year. Now, what the climate change skeptics say is, this all could be true. But we had an ice age in the past. We had a warm age. And global warming is a phenomenon. It's attributable not to human causes, but to natural causes. And you cannot prove that it's not natural causes. And they're right. You can't prove it. Because our only data goes back about a century, let alone five centuries, or let alone five millennia. But the fact that you can't prove it doesn't mean that these statistical models don't prove that natural causes explain the change in temperature for the last 100 years, unless you don't accept statistics at all. The statistics prove, unless you don't accept statistical analysis, the statistics prove that natural causes explain the temperature rise from, let's say, 1800 to 2011. Because we do have data for that time period. But you can't prove that this is not a natural phenomenon as part of a much longer wave. So both things are true. Given whatever natural phenomenon exists, you can statistically show that there's much more global warming attributable to the production of many greenhouse gases, of which carbon is the one we consume the most. But actually, some greenhouse gases are much more lethal. Hydrofluorocarbons, for example, are much more lethal. We just don't consume that many of them. We have succeeded in stopping the stuff that put punctures a hole in the ozone. The Montreal Protocol has been a big success. And we're not damaging the ozone layer as much as we used to. So uh, the amount of skin cancer you're going to get, even if you're dark skin, you still can get skin cancer, uh, from the sun going straight through the ozone is not going to come on as quickly as it would have had we not had a successful Montreal Protocol. But because we have a debate over whether it's natural or humankind, and because the people who say the natural hypothesis has not been disproven, even though they can't prove that either because they don't have data on that either, we have the view in the United States that it's just an unsettled question. So therefore, anyone who wants to oppose higher taxes, which is you can guarantee you're going to have higher taxes if you want to stop this problem, now you could redistribute the tax revenues and lower other taxes to the point where even the net tax increase would be different, but just those people that consume carbon-based fuels would pay higher taxes to the extent that they consume more than the average for the country. If you're a big consumer of gasoline or electricity, you're going to be a big loser economically if the country gets serious about controlling these problems. If you're someone who walks to work and doesn't use a lot of gadgets and doesn't use a lot of electricity, then you're all for the tax because you don't have to bear it. Now, because of the automobile and our roads being built not five centuries ago, 
but five to 35 years ago, Americans drive much, much more than any country in the world except Australia. Believe it or not, Australia's got us beat. Because they're the exact same size we are, but they only have 20 million people. So you got far fewer people to spread out a much bigger desert. Um, but in any event, you know, they're not so far much ahead of us. But because we have so many of these new subdivisions and new cities and sun belts and all of these kinds of things, our demand for gasoline is inelastic. And that means that for every price increase in gasoline or for any other product that has an inelastic demand, we still consume the same amount. If our demand was elastic, we would be very price sensitive and we would reduce our consumption on the item. One of the reasons that people oppose taking a serious, uh, in answer to your earlier question, public policy on global warming is that over the short to medium term, which is about all politicians think about, before you can change the overall structures of the country by building mass transit, by providing interfuel substitution from carbon to non-carbon based fuels, over the short run, demand is always going to be more inelastic than over the long run. Over the long run, we can change our way of living somewhat. Uh, we can get used to the higher taxes. But in the short run, you live in point A, you work in point B, you drive there, you're expected to go to work, there's no mass transit, or mass transit takes you twice as long to get there, so you drive, and you'll pay whatever it is. And even in the last 13 years, the cheapest I remember gas was 79 cents a gallon around the year 2000. And the most expensive, I think, it never got above five, did it? And after Hurricane Katrina, it went up into the four. It's been over four a few times. So $4 a gallon. In my lifetime, the cheapest gas has ever been in Europe, and they sell it by the liter, but the equivalent of a gallon, which is four liters, uh, is probably $9 a gallon. And that's the cheapest. And typically, it would be the equivalent of $15 a gallon. But they don't drive really far apart, and they don't drive, they drive on weekends. They bike to school. They bike to work. In Paris, or Strasbourg, or Scandinavia, or the Netherlands. You drive your bike to work and you're worth clothes. You park your bike there, you don't lock it up, and it's there at the end of the day. And Americans are always deeply offended because they say Europeans smell bad. <laughs> and the hotter the country, the worse they smell. But, you know, anyway. Um, and they probably don't, you know, cover themselves up with oil de soleil or whatever it is, oil de lole, uh, and all these other. But it's not the company anymore. It's just oil. But that's okay. I'm not up to date. <laughs> no, but it's it's amazing to see, you know, French women, for example, are dressed to the nines, right? And they eat caviar, and men, and they eat caviar, gouda cheese, pate de foie gras, red meat. And they're always thin. And they smoke. And they live longer than we do. Because we eat McDonald's. And we don't walk. And we don't ride our bike to work. Oh, they cut with butter in, in, in France, believe me. Yeah. 
and cream, heavy cream. But the portions are a third the size of ours. You know, I went to, to, to uh, Taco Bell the other night. <laughs> Once in a while. I know you, because they boycotted it for four years, and now the boycott's over, so I figured I could go in there. And I got a number two, which is two things and a drink. <laughs> I went in because I ate there. And the, the two packages were like this big, and the drink was, the cup was like this big, and then it was a huge thing around. It was like 48 ounces. And that's the regular combo size drink. I said, I've heard of supersize me, but this is the this is not like asking for the supersize. This is this is what comes. And you and, and unlimited refills. Half of the ice though with ice. You put it, you choose your ice, you fill it up yourself. No, it's in the seventies, like what is now medium, I guess, was the largest size. So when I was a kid, orange juice was three ounces. And that was considered a luxury. And orange, is, orange juice has a lot of calories. Now the kid takes the double quart. And you know, orange juice is better than soda, but it's got as many calories as soda has. And it doesn't have the pulp, so it doesn't have any of the nutritious stuff. And vitamin C is not soluble, so it just comes out of you just as fast as it went in. And the vitamins go out with the, with the you know what. So. Um, Anyway, American life is what it is, and our culture is deeply rooted, and culture changes the slowest. You can change a government, you can change a leader, you can even change the political system before you're ever going to change the culture. They, they even got Mubarak behind bars now. The king is rested along with his two kids, and you know who knows what will happen to them? Probably, you know, they took him out now. They arrested him because people were protesting. They want, we want their head. And it's convenient for the army because if they execute these guys or keep them in prison for the rest of their life, then the army can say, you see, we've changed everything. And meanwhile, the army will stay in power. So culture, you know, however it got there, we don't understand how culture is. All we know is it just doesn't change. Americans are very nationalistic people. It took two huge wars to get rid of nationalism in Europe. And that's a big price to pay. So somehow Americans, if we are going to take this problem seriously, and maybe it's not a real problem. Maybe we're just all been brainwashed by these scientists who say that the, all these floods are going to occur and, and the, the East Coast is going to be underwater and uh, everybody's going to be running to the hills. And maybe all of this, even if it happens, well, too bad. It's just 10% of the world's population will be underwater. That's not bad. We've got too many people anyway, right? But you know, Americans are the way they are. And it doesn't seem to be like anyone, anyone has a way to get how people to think differently and change their behavior. The only thing that will make Americans or any other nationality change is to be scared. And you know we're not scared of many things in the United States because most of us have it good. I mean, we don't have it great. Well, we're not underwater. We're not fighting a war. We got 
somebody else to fight the war for us. We think we have clean water. <laughs> You're drinking it from the Chattahoochee. We're not Haiti. And we didn't have an earthquake. But we are drinking water from the Chattahoochee. And we're not in Japan. So as long as those things are out there, Americans will say, we've got it better than most people. And we do. We do have it better. And like I said last time, you know, a lot of great things about the United States. But until people consider this to be an important issue, I haven't heard Obama mention it once. After Copenhagen, December 2009, he could have tried to get a bill for cap and trade throughout the House and into the Senate. It did pass the House under the Republicans. It never passed the Senate. What would cap and trade do? It would allow countries that want to pollute more to buy the license to pollute from countries who are given licenses to pollute more than they actually pollute. And as a result of this horse trading, selling the certificates on the right to pollute from those countries that can, are willing to sell them and therefore not pollute, the net effect on the atmosphere will be the same for the whole planet. That's what we call a supply-side solution. And that's the one that's been analyzed in the United States. Carbon tax was a non-starter, because all that was was a tax on gasoline and electricity, and maybe food, because actually food produces a lot of pollution. If you look at that chart on page 317, you'll see that agriculture is a huge producer. Part of it is because the cows, when they cause a lot of global warming, believe it or not, Methane gas is a big greenhouse gas. But more importantly, the tractors, the delivery of the food on the highways uses diesel fuel. The big tractor trailers produce a lot more pollution. You ever see one of those guys accelerate? Look at that black suit that comes out of there. You ever try to breathe that? So that's also part of the cost of food. So carbon tax went nowhere. What we can sell to the American public is cap and trade. We cap the, the level of pollution on the whole world, and then we trade through market-based trading the right to buy and sell these rights to pollute among nations. And that's where it stands politically. OK, thanks, everybody. Good luck with everything. If you need a recommendation, you need advice, an internship, you want to take my class this summer, whatever it is, I wish you all the very best. Tonight, yeah. Okay.